Here, we're in the book of Hebrews. So if you would, grab your Bibles. If you've got your Bibles, grab the one that's in front of the pew there. But grab your Bible so you can open up to the book of Hebrews as we continue where we left off last week. If you've been following along with us, you know exactly where we are. We are in the epistle, this letter, this writer writes to the Hebrew believers. Last week, it was an interesting and in-depth conversation and, and throws many people off in regards to that. Hopefully, that brought some clarity and eased your mind somewhat from last week. This week, I'm going to continue on that conversation as we pick back up in verse 7, and we will tie it into the rest of this chapter, and I do hope that uh, it will continue to encourage you and your walk and understanding and your assurity of salvation. Now we see in chapter 6, verse 6, that if you turn your back on Jesus, don't expect to find salvation anywhere else, especially in the practice of religion. Apart from the faith and the fullness of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, there is no hope. Only putting your trust in Jesus and Him alone for your salvation gives you the assurity and hope. In verse 7 and 8, the writer tells the Hebrew believers that there are consequences when you don't live for Jesus. And he gives a, an illustration here of serious consequence, consequences from falling away or thinking about walking away from Jesus. And he gives it here in verse 7, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned." So the illustrations that the, the illustration that the writer writes here is of a field. It reminds us of Matthew 13, of the, of the field and in the Lord's parable of the sower. Go back and read chapter 13 uh, today on that, as well as it reminds us here in verse 8 of Paul's teaching about the fire testing of our works for God that will take place. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 23. Because at the very end, all of our works that we said we did for God will be tested. And those things that were not truly in the attitude or the right heart of the things we've done will be burned. We see that when we get in, uh, in front of Jesus at the, great, at the beam of seat for us as believers. For the earth which drinks in the rain, God is going to rain upon the land. And when the earth receives rain, it is for the intention to bear fruit from that land. That's the intent. It fulfills its purpose when the land bears fruit because of the blessing of the rain that came upon it. The writer to the Hebrews applies this point. You've, you've been blessed, but where is your fruit? God looks for what grows in us after he blesses us 
especially looking for what grows in terms of spiritual maturity. God is looking in our lives. Once we have been blessed, are he, is he seeing the spiritual maturity coming, growing from our life? How do you know if you're a Christian? By looking at the, being the fruit inspectors, to look at the fruit of people's lives. That's how we know if they're maturing or not. The field proves its worth by bearing fruit. Just like a true believer. A true believer, as he makes spiritual progress, bears fruit for God's glory. Now, he also gave an illustration. If the field grows uh, thorns and briars, those thorns and briars will be rejected. They're of the world. They're not, they're not fruit. It is if ground is blessed by rain but refuses to bear fruit, no one blames the farmer for the thorns and, and briars. They don't blame the, the, the farmer for taking those out of the field and burning them and getting rid of them because they're not fruitful for the land. And no one blames the farmer for doing that because it's unfruitful. The idea shows that growth and bearing fruit are important to keep from falling away. When we really bear fruit in our lives, spiritual fruit, we are abiding in Jesus, we see in John chapter 15, verse 5. And are no danger, and we're not in danger of falling away. Note, it's the thorns and briars are burned. Not the field. God never curses his own. Now the writer continues here and brings about this, this encouragement to the believing Hebrews. And he says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So though the... Though the, though the writer spoke or wrote very direct to these believers in the warning that he gave them, there was no sugarcoating by this writer to the Hebrew believers. He's not messing around here. Is because this is serious things that we talk about. The writer, as a pastor, when we teach the word, these are serious things about our lives and we're to warn you. And that's what the, the writer here did, is they directly wrote the writer to the Hebrews with confidence, not only as the warning, but he also had very much a confidence in the fact, better things concerning you. Yes, we have much confidence that you're going to start growing and continuing to follow Jesus in your life. And so he says that in verse 9. Confident of a better things concerning you. This is wherever you are in your walk right now, it can get better. Why? Because there's a company of salvation. There's these things that are in your life, the fruit that will bear will be evident that you are walking in God and, and maturing in your, in your faith. The crop of God's blessing, pictured in verse 7, is called things that accompany salvation that are noted here in verse 9. Not every believer bears the same amount of fruit. We see that noted in Matthew chapter 13, verse 23. 
Some bear fruit that's hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. So you never judge or never look at people's lives, uh, how fruitful they are, as something, oh, they're only... <laughs> They're only producing, you know, 30. And uh, there's something wrong with them. That is not true. God determines how much fruit is bearing in their lives and at the point where they are in maturity. They could be a brand new believer and they're at 30 and you might be at 60, but you've been saying you've been walking with the Lord 30, 40 years. There should be a problem there. Right? So you should grow in, in appropriation to the amount of maturity in your, in your walk with Jesus. How mature you are will determine many, as we see in the scripture, how much fruit will bear. So it's not, it's, it's gonna, the same amount of fruit will vary between believers, but every believer bears the same kind of fruit. Ah, now that's what we determine on, is what kind of fruit is bearing as proof that he is or she is a child of God. And we see that noted in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Well, what is that fruit? What's the kind of fruit we're supposed to be seeing from mature Christians or even from baby Christians? Eventually we'll have, but it's the same fruit. A baby Christian or a Christian been walking a long time. Same fruit, but different amounts of fruit. Well, we see that the fruit of a Christian character and a Christian conduct, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26, produced by the Spirit as we mature in Christ. And that is love. And all the facets of that God's love. That's the fruit that we should be seeing from someone who declares themselves to be a true believer. Now, again, at the very verse, and end of this verse 9, the, the writer acknowledges that he was pretty direct in his warning to these believers who were thinking about going back to the religious ways, back to Judaism, Blending this Judaism and Christianity and blending them together because they both kind of had some commonality. And we'll just go back to the religious ways and do the checkoff. I went to the synagogue. I did the sacrifice. I'm keeping the dietary commandments. I'm dressing a certain way. I'm... He's like, don't, that's not going to bring you to a point where you're going to grow and mature in your faith with, uh, in Jesus Christ. It's his finished work that allows us to be able to come and to praise him and have a personal relationship with him. Not the religious entity or organization. A church organization, a religious organization doesn't save you. Regardless of what that organization tells you. You're only saved by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Period. And so he says... Though we speak in this manner, this direct manner. And I give you a strong warning here, verses 4 through 8. The very strong warning shows how badly these struggling Christians desperately needed encouragement. Desperately needed encouragement. Their spiritual danger was not so much out of a calculated rebellion against Christianity, but more because of a depressing discouragement. Yes, they were warned. 
They are needing to be warning. But they also, these believers needed encouragement. And the writer is going to give them very sound encouragement and a surety of their salvation in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 10, For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you, having ministered to the saints, and do minister. So we see right here that very first thing, but don't be discouraged because God hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't forgotten you. That's what the writer is saying to the Hebrews. God hasn't forgotten you. Don't be discouraged. Why? Because the writer here lists some of the fruit that he knew was being produced from their, their lives as they followed Christ. What did he say? Because of their love, right? Fruit. Because of their love. They demonstrated that love by serving God. How? They worked and labored for the Lord. We don't know exactly what they did. They could have been cleaning the bathrooms. They could have been vacuuming. They could have been evangelizing on the streets. But they were, what? Out of love for their, their Savior, they were working and laboring for Him. That's the first fruit that is accompanied, showing that they're saved. They had ministered to other saints. We see that they're ministering to the saints. They're brothers and sisters. They were ministering to them as the Lord led them. Out of what purpose? Love. Not to get something from them, but to what can they give to them to help them. That is a good indication of God's love, the fruit that is bearing. Why? Because we know in Galatians, the fruit is not for you. The spiritual food that is produced from your life is not for you. It is for everyone around you. So the love, they can pluck that fruit from your life. Kindness, they can pluck that fruit from your life. Gentleness, they can pluck that fruit from your life. All of the things that long-suffering, you can pluck that from your life. These things was evident to the writer of the Hebrews. So he's acknowledging that some of these things are that accompany salvation. These things show an indication that you are saved. Now, God is not unjust to forget your work or labor of love. He was, he, when we are discouraged, we often think God forgot us and all we did for him and his people. But he hasn't forgotten you. He sees all things. Because we see here, if God did not remember, the writer says God would be unjust. And God can never be unjust. Because we have to understand a very simple doctrine that God sees and remembers and that he is a just God. And you have to remember that. So when your feelings and your head goes squirrely, like, oh, God doesn't, no one notices that I'm doing these things for other people. Why didn't they not? God sees everything and that's all that matters. Why? Because we don't serve to get be served. We serve out of love for God. And he directs us in how we are to serve. Sometimes our fear that God forgot our work and labor of love comes from relying upon our feelings 
and on the attention and applause of people that we tried to get. It's true that some people may forget your work. They may not even acknowledge your labor of love for them. But God will never forget. And that's what we hold on to. Now in verse 11, the writer continues and says, And we desire. So it's not just the writer, but those who were strong in the Lord at that moment in time. They're writing collectively. And the writer's the one that's just the one writing on the pen here. It says, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence. You show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish. (laughs) Don't become a sluggard. Don't become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience, that's key, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So the writer says here to the Hebrews, encourages them like a coach. If you've been around sports like I have been my whole life, you know what a coach is and what they're to do. And you know when you see a good coach and when you don't see a good coach, right? But the writer here is trying to encourage him like a coach to encourage him to pressing us, kind of pressing us to press on, encouraging us to continue our race and finish well with what God has started in our lives. We must keep our good work, pressing on with that hope until the end. We're supposed to have, we have this hope, we have this promise, we have an end in mind that the, our, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior is coming back for us. That's our hope. That's our promise in the scriptures. And with that, we are encouraged by the writer here as well as to imitate those who inherit, not earned, notice, those who are, have inherited God's promises, you cannot buy or earn your way through works to salvation. That is impossible. That is a, that's a legalism. That is, the, that is living by the law and not by grace with the, in the New Testament. So you have to get that settled in your head if that's still being squirrely in your head. Like, I've got to go work because that's going to please God. No, it doesn't. Even though it does, it doesn't, it doesn't help you get saved anymore. Why? Because you inherit the God's promises when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You now become adopted into his family and you inherit all of these God's promises that we read in the scripture. That's what the writer is saying here. So imitate those who have understood that their inheritance, understood that God's promises are for them because of a relationship, because now they're a child of God. And find those people in your fellowship. Find those strong Christians, those ones living by grace, living by understanding of God's promise, and be around them so you can help learn and grow. That's why I, I don't like when people isolate themselves in fellowship and think they're just fine long-term sitting at home with no other people around them that are strong in the faith. Because a scripture like this tells us to imitate those who inherit God's promises. And when we fall, fail to do this, 
What will happen is the writer writes, and I have seen it played out in so many people's lives, when they are not understanding this, then they become very, the discouragement often makes us become sluggish in our faith. What? This says right here. Imitate those who found the key to gaining God's promises. How? Through faith and patience. As demonstrated, give me an example. Well, the writer gives it to us. As demonstrated by Abraham. It's a great example. Why is that? Because we are grateful to remember Abraham's life. If you studied in the Old Testament Abraham's life and to see that he did not have a perfect faith and he certainly did not have perfect patience, did he? But that was God's example of why Abraham is so perfect for us today. Because sometimes when our faith is not perfect or our patience in living for God is not perfect, we get become very discouraged, very discouraged in our walk with Christ. And we know in the scriptures here... We need to be more like Caleb and Joshua, as we studied on Wednesday nights in the Old Testament, when we must take God's promise that we're going to take us into the promised land and give us rest in Him, that we start to to want it, to accept it and understand God's promise and claim the land and not be fearful in what we see ahead of us. Because if you get discouraged in your walk, If you take your eyes off of Jesus and put it on the situations in your life. If you think there's a better way than following Jesus. And that can be religion, which is, I think, is the number one challenge for most people. Because once you've walked out of the world, even a very religious person who is a non-believer, but just a religious person, understands the world is dark and destructive. And they don't want that. But that doesn't make them saved. Just because they're religious. It's about a relationship. A surrendered, self-denying relationship to Jesus Christ. That's what transforms a person. That's what we spoke of earlier. Regenerates and brings life to your, into you. The Spirit of God comes inside you being born again. Now we see this if you get to a point where you find where you're starting to question, do I really want to full, full steam ahead follow Jesus? Or do I still want something of the world? I still want a little bit of quasi-religion here and that's good enough for make me feel good when I get really back into the world in darkness and my own little squirrely head of mine but you find that you will become discouraged in your walk as a Christian and that will bring sluggishness to your life that's what the writer says here the idea is that we should not let discouragement make us sluggish because it will lead you and I down a path where we will give up go back today Read and heed what the scripture says when Solomon's warning and writes in Proverbs 24, verses 30 
through 34. Go read that this afternoon. And you will realize first, when we lose the desire to press on, then we will lose the desire to go on. It's a slippery slope. And unfortunately, I've watched it way too many times of people who will just, will not keep showing up regardless of how they feel. (laughs) And they will not desire to press on. And it's only a matter of time they will not desire to go on in their walk as a Christian. Now we see in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, that David showed a great answer to discouragement as a Christian. It says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. But in King James' version, it's a different word. He uses uh, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And I think that, that verse, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, is important because it's a blessing when others encourage us in our walk. When we need that so desperately to be encouraged in our walk. But we don't have to wait for someone to encourage you to encourage you in difficult times as a Christian. Why? Because we see in the scriptures with this verse that we can encourage ourselves in the Lord. And you must, and as you mature in your walk, you will learn to encourage yourself in your walk with Christ when no one else is encouraging you. That's why I always tell people, you need to be a mature Christian, really mature, before you go out and do any kind of missionary work or go out and start a new work, because you will have to encourage yourself for many years potentially before you have mature Christians around you encouraging you. Oh, so, so true. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, the writer will end this section for us today with a tremendous argument or arguments, I call them foundational truths he will lay out to to encourage an understanding and encourage us through possible discouragement about our assurance of salvation. All of us Christians are not making the perfect spiritual progress we would like to see in our lives. Are we not? Do we not desire, you should desire, Lord, I want to go deeper with you in my relationship. I don't want to be playing this religious quasi kind of religious and turn it on when someone asks me if I'm a Christian. Yes, I, I write down Christian down. Fill in the blank. Are you, you know, what's your religion? Christian. But no one else would have known that except for you writing it down. So we all want, to, we're not perfect in our walk yet. We have not been completed yet. When you got saved, he started us on a journey of sanctification. Yes, you've been justified, just as if you've never sinned before. You've been washed by the the blood of the Lamb. He has washed, it's finished, it's done. You're no longer a sinner going to hell. You are now a sinner saved by grace. And that He has washed you, and now He's working and sanctifying your life to bring you ultimately, when He comes and gets you as a child of God, as His bride, and He takes you out of here. 
and then you'll be glorified. And yes, then the perfection is complete. The work is complete. But God is faithful to start this work in your life, and he is faithful to complete this work in your life. And you must hold on to that. The writer here gives these three foundations, and we'll finish the scriptures on this, verses 13 through 18. Let's look. The very first foundation that we see here is for when God made a promise. That's the first one. God's promise is the first foundation he's laying out here to, the, to these believers, these Hebrew believers, that your, your, your salvation is assured. It says, For when God had made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely, I, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Abraham obtained the promise by by continuing to hold on to God's promise that he gave him. And he just kept promised, he wasn't perfect in it, but he patiently continued to wait upon God's promise. And a season of patient endurance is a time of spiritual attack. Let me say that again. A season of patient endurance, to build up your endurance in walking with Christ, is a time of spiritual attack. You'll be attacked no more. So greatly will you be attacked when you're trying to endure and be patient in what God's doing in your life. The attacks are going to happen. And it seems that we may never obtain the promise of God in our life. And it's, it's always so easy for us to sit there and say, will God really come through in my situation? Will God ever change me so I don't have to deal with the issues in my life? Will God make this right? I mean, we come up with all kinds of things. We are always questioning, is God's promise for me? Maybe for everybody else, but it doesn't seem it's for me. Have you ever been on that path a few times? It's a quite the roller coaster. But God's promise to Abraham is our promise as well. Why? Well, he had to patiently endure and he obtained that promise. God came through for Abraham and even sealing his promise, as we will see in verse 16, with an oath. In fact, because he could swear by no greater, no one greater, he swore by himself. This oath showed that God's promise, like his character, are unchanging. They're unchanging. God doesn't change his character. Abraham's trust in this was the gateway to the fulfillment of that promise God gave him. Many of God's promises do not depend on our character. Praise the Lord. But they very much are based upon His faithfulness. God's promises to you 
is based on his faithfulness, not based on your performance or your character. Remember, he's developing you. He's still trans- transforming, changing your character to be more like who? Christ. He's going to get there with you. <laughs> Easier, hard. He's faithful to finish that work. Now, the readers of this letter, that would include us as well today, were discouraged and about to give up on their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Their endurance was running out, and they were wondering why the writer here is encouraging them to diligently apply yourselves to the development of your spiritual life. What is keeping us from making spiritual progress in our life? We do not constantly, consistently apply ourselves by faith in every aspect of our life. That is why you're not growing. You're different at work than you are at church. You're different at work when you're around certain people than at church. You're different at home than at church. You're different at church than whatever it may be. You're not consistently applying what God says you are to be as a child of God. That's why you're not spiritually progressing. The farmer does not reap a harvest by sitting on his porch looking at the seed. He must get busy and plow. He must plow, he must plant, he must weed, he must cultivate, and at times perhaps has to water the soil to get the seed to grow to be fruitful from the land. The believer who neglects church fellowship, who ignores the Bible, who forgets to pray, and desires not to serve God, is not going to reap much of a harvest from their life. You will not see spiritual maturity taking place. They will be fruitless. How long would a farmer keep going keep going on being a farmer if he did not have a harvest? Sadly to say, many Christians are just like that. They blame everyone else why they're not spiritually growing. It's because they've neglected the things of God. But they'll blame everyone else why they're not doing well. So I'm just thinking, I'm just going to walk away from this whole thing. I'll do it my way. I'll go back to the old ways. I'll kind of create my own thing, you know, me and God. We, we, we got it tight. We, got, we know what we're doing here. We, 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 my, oh, it's all about my personal, you know, just me and him. You know, I don't need anybody else. I mean, the things that crazy things we will say. Because you're talking to someone who doesn't know the scripture. They're immature or a non-believer. Second foundation the writer gives us is verse 16. 
For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them and an end of all dispute. Thus God determined to show more abundantly to their heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it, confirmed it by an oath. Verse 18, and that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, consolation meaning encouragement, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So he says here, the writer writes here about these two immutable things in which is it impossible for God to lie, meaning what God has stated is absolute truth. Regardless of how you feel, this is truth. It's right. It's unchangeable. That's what immutable means. Unchangeable. What are those two things? God's promise and God's oath. God's promise and God's oath. It is impossible for God to lie in either of these two things. So the writer sitting here saying God has a strong consolation or strong encouragement. Not just some encouragement, but strong encouragement, strong consolation. Because God isn't content to give us just some encouragement. He's only content by giving us a strong encouragement. How? In and by the word of God. Hold on. We'll see the rest of how this all ties in here. God did not do this only for Abraham. He has, he has also given his promise and his oath to the heirs of the promise. Who's the heirs of the, Abraham's promise? You and I, believers. That's our heir. How do I see that? For you note takers, so you can go back, here's the scriptures for you to have solid foundation of why this is based on why the writer writes this. Because Abraham and his descendants are the first of these heirs we will see in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 9. But all believers are included as Abraham's spiritual seed. Where do you see that? In Galatians chapter 3 verse 29. So our assurance of salvation is guaranteed by God's promise and by God's oath to immutability of immutable foundational truth, doctrinal truths that you must settle your salvation upon. They're unchanging. And this is the way we can have great consolation or great encouragement in our walk with Christ because we have a hope in Him and Him alone. Why? Because hope is set before us. We follow Jesus. We say, follow Jesus. Why? Because He's our hope. If you're not following Jesus, you really do not have eternal hope. You may think you have hope. You don't have eternal hope if you're not following Jesus. Why do I know that for a fact? 
because the Bible tells me so. It's simple for me. The world will tell you all kinds of things. Your own squirrely little head will tell you all kinds of things. But that's not true. It's not true. If it goes against the word of God. I know some of you are great philosophers. And you're great scientists. Great this and great that and great that. But if it goes against the word of God, you're not so great. It's called foolishness. Remember, the book of Hebrews is a book of encouragement, not discouragement. As we will continue through the book of Hebrews. But notice here, at the, this, this second foundation of, of God's oath. That who have fled to the refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This is another reason for encouragement for you and I in our walk with Christ. Knowing that God has a refuge of hope set before us. Now this should automatically trigger for you when you hear the word refuge, the, it has that connection of the refuge, cities of refuge, that we see in uh, Numbers uh, 35, we'll eventually get there on Wednesday nights, but also Joshua chapter 20. But if you know the city of refuge, we understand that was commanded by the law of Moses that there be a place if you accidentally killed a man that you had a place to run to. There were six cities, three on either side of the Jordan, but you were able to go to these designated cities, go to the elders and plead your case, and the elders would acknowledge or examine the case, the law, the case, if that person was a manslaughter or full-out murder. If it was an accident, then you could find rest or security or safety in that city of refuge until the high priest died who was living at that time. I wouldn't want that position as a high priest, would you? You'd have a lot of people going to the city of refuge praying every day, God, please you know, take out the high priest so I can go back home. Because you couldn't leave that city until the high priest was died, and then you would be safe to leave to go back to your house. But if that high priest had not died yet, then you are safe by saying in the city. You could not leave the city if you did. Then the man who you killed, that family could get revenge upon you if you walked out of that city of refuge. We too have fled to Jesus Christ for refuge. And he is our great refuge. And as our high priest, he will never, ever die. And he, we have eternal salvation in him alone. He is our refuge. Now we see the third foundation and we wrap it up here in verses 19 and 20. We see the fact that we don't be discouraged because God's promises are reliable. He is reliable to us. We're, we also know not to be discouraged in the fact that 
he's going to somehow forget about you. He's not going to forget about you. But we also see here in the fact in this third foundation is God's son. And that we don't be discouraged because Jesus will lead us into God's glory. We have that assurity here in verses 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So our hope in Christ is like an anchor for the soul, the writer says. Christians have but one anchor, and one anchor alone. And what is that? The anchor is Jesus Christ. And there is no other anchor to stabilize our life. The anchor was a common figure, I believe it's like 66 times, if I remember correctly, in the scripture referencing an anchor. It's an anchor, it's a common figure for anchor of hope. In the ancient world, you see it all over in the design of the architect. Architectural design, I should say. But here the idea is that we are anchored to something firm but unseen. Which is referenced here in verse 19, which enters the presence, capital P in your Bibles it should be, Presence behind the veil. Now you don't need an anchor for calm seas, do you? You're just out there calm seas. You're just floating and having a great time in life. But the rougher the weather, the more important your anchor is in your life. The ship must hold the hold of the anchor even as we must lay hold of hope. The anchor itself may have a strong grip and be secured to the ocean floor. Absolutely secure, locked in on the ocean floor, not going to be moved. Yet if it isn't securely attached to the ship, what use is it? There is no use. But there's also a sense in which the anchor has hold of the ship, even as hope has hold of us. But our spiritual anchor is not in the bottom of the ground, but it's upward in heaven. And our anchor is designed to help us to move on, And not to stand still. But the analogy, the illustration that the writer is writing here is who is the anchor that's going to calm you in stormy seas and hold you tight? It's not going to toss you to and fro. It's not going to um, cause you to drift away. Or to spin out of control. What is the anchor that you hold on to in the times of difficulties in your life as a Christian? 
When things seem uncertain, when the storms come and it's not what you expected. It was supposed to be clear skies on the water today. It was supposed to be a, this beautiful, calm day to go fishing. It was supposed to be a, just a place where we could just sit back and just float today and not worry about anything. And now all of a sudden a storm comes in and we're about to die. What is the anchor that's going to hold you firm and hold you calm in the stormy seas? The anchor is Jesus Christ, the Word of God. Don't forget John. I am the what? The Word. When you read these things and you ponder on these things, that our confidence, anchor-like hope, sees us into the very presence of God and gives us a hope that is exactly the medicine for discouragement Christians need. And so when you understand this, our anchor is to go to the word of God when the storms rise up. We're in the anchor in, when we just want to sit there and float on the water. We still want to anchor. What? We need to be in the word of God. So when you discount the word, you just put aside the word, you just put aside Jesus, you're just, I don't need any of this, you are putting yourself at great risk. Come back to the word of God. And then the writer ends his foundational arguments here for assuring salvation in the Savior as our forerunner. The forerunner. Even Jesus, it says here in the scripture, in verse 20. We are assured of this access into the presence of God because Jesus has entered heaven as the forerunner for us. Now the Old Testament high priest who was only one able to go into the Holy of Holies was not the forerunner. He was just a representative only Jesus has entered into the immediate presence of the God the Father and so that his people who follow him follow the forerunner into the presence of our Holy Father. See, a forerunner, the ancient Greek word is very prominent here. It's prodromos. prodromos. It means a military reconnaissance man. A man or a forerunner going forward into, that means knowing that others are following behind him going in. If there is no afterrunners or after, yeah, afterrunners, then there would be no need for a forerunner. But yet Jesus is the forerunner and we are the afterrunners. We're running after him every single day. And we must. We should follow hard after Jesus. Run hard after him day by day. He has gone before us and he is our pattern of life that we want to imitate. Now the very end here we see that behind the veil. Having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Do you remember? The writer started this conversation, but paused to deal with salvation issue. If you remember back in chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, the temple analogy that the writer started talking about behind the veil reminds the writer to the Hebrews of the previous start of the subject that he was writing about our high priest according to Melchizedek. That will be our next subject in chapter 7. Let us hold, my brothers and sisters, let us lay hold of the main reason of the section here through chapters 1 through 6, especially here in chapters 5 and 6. We must, as believers, must go on to maturity, spiritual maturity. We must. Do not be satisfied where you are in your spiritual maturity. We must continue to mature, and God had made it possible for us to do that. There is no reason to say, I can't. The reason why you can't grow in maturity of your faith is because you don't want to do it. That's as simple as it is. You cannot blame anyone else. Oh, he hinders me. He won't let me go to church. Or she hinders me. He won't go to church. No, 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 no. You're not maturing because you choose not to. You may have difficulties. Don't get me wrong. Spiritual roadblocks thrown in front of you all the day long. But you can still continue to mature. Why? Because you're going to continue to love Jesus and continue to meditate on his word day and night. If we start to drift from the word, we saw that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, then we will also start to doubt the word of God. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 3, 7 and 7 through chapter 4 through 13. And so if we drift from the word, we'll start doubting the word of God, and then before long we will get dull toward the word of God. It's just dull. I don't get anything out of it. We see that warning in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 20 today. And what will happen to you, and what maybe you're experiencing today, is you will become discouraged and you will be sluggish in your Christian walk. And when you become sluggish, you start having conversations in your head that says, I can take or leave. I, don't, I really don't care. It's no big deal to me. I've got other important things to do. You become sluggish. I call it a sluggard. Lazy believers. And the best way to keep yourself from drifting is to lay hold of the anchor, the word of God. Our heavenward anchor, you must hold on and continue regardless of how you feel. That's what is going to give you not only security, but also encouragement. So I pray. You are all encouraged in the hope that Jesus gives us. And that hope is only in Jesus Christ.
So don't be discouraged, my brothers and sisters. 